Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, where we discuss how to move away from a linear take-make-waste economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems. A circular economy. My name is Laura, and I am part of the learning team here at the Foundation. In this episode, Seb Egerton-Reed, the learning program's lead, is joined by Stephanie Kelton, the author of The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and and how to build a better economy. Throughout the episode, they discuss the role of modern monetary theory in shifting common misconceptions around government deficits. And they try to answer questions such as, do we understand the economy? Do we really know how money works? To kick off the conversation, Seb asked Stephanie why she wrote a book about the deficit myth and what it means. You know, it's like, I wish there were just one myth. I mean, it's it's a singular in the title, the deficit myth, but the reality is um, there are a lot of myths when it comes to the way that we've been taught to understand or not understand and to think about the government's deficit. So the first six chapters of the book are really just myth-busting. It's sort of picking apart one after another after another of these kind of misunderstandings, myths, stories that we've been told about the government's budget deficit. What is this thing? And is it really the impediment to progress that we've been taught to believe? Is it the reason that governments can't spend more on public goods shoring up you know, health care and education and dealing with coronavirus and, you know, all of the sort of things that we hear on radio and TV and in our newspapers. So, um, you know, it's a series of myths. And they really begin, I think, with the one that starts off telling us that we ought to think about the government's finances the way that we think about our own personal finances, that the government basically has to run its budget the way that any of us do. You know, you have to live within your means. You can't spend more than you take in. If you do, maybe you can do that for a short period of time. You do it by borrowing, but, you know, you're on borrowed time when you borrow money because you're taking on debt. And at some point that has to be paid back, just like you and I would have to pay back our credit card uh, debt at some point. And so we're told to think of the government's finances the way we think of our own. And then everything sort of follows from there. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding. So it's the place I start in the book trying to correct the thinking. So um, so you're, what you're saying is that the government, the way in which we spend money publicly, the government's spending is not like me. For example, I get a certain amount of income in a month. Um, and that's all I get unless I borrow, you know, off a credit card or whatever, or a loan. And then there's obviously very clear payment back terms on that. I guess one of the reasons that narrative has been so compelling, and we've seen it in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, with a lot of governments going through these sort of austerity moments, and uh, and to some extent, it's beginning to creep back into lexicon now. Um, is because it's very understandable. How does it actually work? Well, okay. So in the book, which uh, the first chapter of the book is actually titled, Don't Think of a Household. So that's where we start, right? B- busting these myths. So 
how does it actually work? And why is the federal government different from a household? And by the way, also different from all of the businesses in our economy. Um, the main difference is that the government is what I say in the book is the issuer of the currency. And the rest of us are just users of the currency. So if you think about the differential power that you would have if you were a currency issuer and you could literally spend your currency into existence, which is what governments can do, they manufacture their own currency into existence by spending it. When they spend it, we have it. That's where it comes from. The rest of us can't do that. I mean, there are laws against counterfeiting, and so it's illegal if we try to create the government's currency or recreate it in our basements or our garages. You can't do that. You are the user of the currency, and you are constrained in your ability to spend in ways that a currency-issuing government like the UK, like the US, like Japan or Australia, Canada, and many other countries uh, do not face purely financial constraints by virtue of the fact that they essentially have a monopoly on the issuance of their own currency. So, you know, in the book, I say you can think of the government like the scorekeeper for the British pound. The British government is a scorekeeper for the pound. So, when you think of a scorekeeper, what do you think of? Maybe it's a card game. Maybe you're playing bridge. Maybe you go to a football game. There's a scorekeeper who awards the points, right? The points appear up on the scoreboard or you jot them down on a notepad. And you say, where do the points come from? They don't come from anywhere. They're conjured into existence by the scorekeeper. They can write the numbers down. We have become accustomed to and trained to think of the government not as the scorekeeper, but as just another player in the game, you know, that's constrained like all the other players, and that's not right. The government's scorecard doesn't really matter. It isn't relevant in and of itself. What matters is the economy's scorecard. If we're keeping score, we want to keep we want to keep track of, we want to keep score for the things that matter in our economy. How many people are without jobs? How many people are living in poverty? How many businesses are going under? How many, you know, the real things that matter, keep score, keep track of those things. But the number that falls out of the government's budget box at the end of each year is in and of itself unimportant. Having just recently bought a house myself, I really do wish I could spend into existence. Um, <laughs> and actually, it's interesting. <laughs> what you say is intuitively true to us, and we remember it kind of in moments like we're living through, right? It, right now, no one is stressing about the money that government is spending in order to provide support for people who cannot work because of lockdowns or anything like that. We At this moment, the government is not stressing about paying things back because it can kind of do what it wants. As you say, it has a monopoly on the currency and so we can spend billions or trillions of pounds. I mean, the numbers are quite staggering actually in terms of what we've already spent in terms of coronavirus relief. Um, so, it's, and, and I guess it, the same could be said in World War II and the same could be said in terms of some of the business and bank bailouts that were handed out after 2008. We remember when we really need to that it, the government is fundamentally not another player. Well, you're absolutely right. And thank goodness, because imagine where we would be today if governments around the world were actually incapable 
of stepping forward and committing huge sums, right? We've we've seen governments around the, the globe spend something like $11 trillion, commit something like $11 trillion in terms of fiscal support for ailing economies. If they actually had to behave like a, like a business, like a family, then they would be doing what businesses and families around the world are doing, which is tightening their belts, cutting back because they don't have the income in order to continue to pay their bills, to cover their expenses, to buy food. Government is coming in and providing a backstop, right? It's providing some fiscal support in the form of, you know, taking over uh, payrolls, helping businesses cover payroll costs and other business expenses, helping families uh, buy food and pay bills by you know, providing some income support and so forth. So it's a darn good thing that uh, currency issuing governments can do what they can do because without it, we would be in a much worse uh, economic and social situation than we already are. And it's, it's pretty bad already. Of course, this does raise the question does that mean that governments can literally spend whatever they want? It doesn't matter how much debt or deficit that the government has. Is that is that a comp- you, you you described it as kind of not the most relevant thing? Does it mean it doesn't matter? Literally, the governments never have to pay anything back. Well, okay, so let's let's take these maybe in turn because I my own experience is that when I talk to people, including some you know students who come in to take economics courses for the first time, they're not always clear on the difference between the deficit and the debt. And so I just think maybe it's worth uh, taking just a moment to make sure that everybody who's listening can you know keep those two things separate and we talk about what they mean. So the government deficit, this thing we call a fiscal deficit, the government's deficit, is the difference between two numbers. That's all it is. The difference between two numbers. One number is how many pounds the government is spending into the economy in a period of time, say a year, and how many British pounds the government is subtracting out of the economy, mainly through taxation in a certain period of time. So the difference between those numbers. So if the government spends more pounds into the economy, then it subtracts back out. The word we use to describe that is a government deficit. We say the government is in deficit. But what does that word mean? I mean, a deficit implies a shortfall, right? You say, oh, there's a deficit. You're short something. The government's not short anything. It's added, let's say, 100, spent 100 in, and it taxes 90 back out. What it's done is it has made a deposit of 10 British pounds somewhere into the economy. You spend 100 in, subtract 90, you leave someone with 10. So we choose to use this word deficit to describe what's happening. And the reality is we could just as easily use the word surplus to describe what's happening because the government's net spending, spending more than it's taxing, results in a financial surplus in some other part of the economy. So this is why I always like to remind people, every deficit is good for someone. The question is, where is that surplus going? Who gets that 10? And how is it being used, right? Because you can imagine good deficits and bad deficits because you don't want, let's say, uh, a government deficit that always just helps the people who least need the help in the economy, provides a windfall for people who are already doing phenomenally well. You want to direct those um, surpluses into the hands of people who are struggling to support the economy. So that's the, the thing we call the deficit. 
we should we should start calling it the surplus or the government's financial deposit or some other word because deficit is just creating a lot of confusion and unnecessary anxiety about what's actually happening. And just to dwell so on then, that point for one moment is that obviously sure. what that surplus could go towards, for example, is creating jobs that actually alleviates the need for government to spend on things like uh, unemployment support, for example. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So how you use the deficit matters, right? The deficit always matters because this government deficit is always producing a financial surplus in some part of the economy. So in that sense, it always matters. The question is, you know, are you running good deficits? Are you running wasteful deficits? Are you doing useful things that, as you just said, help to restore jobs and support business and communities and uh, rebuild and repair damage that's being done? So that's that's the deficit part, right? The difference between two numbers, if the government has a deficit on its books, it means that the rest of the economy has a surplus on their books. So then what is this thing we call the debt? And is there something that has to be paid back? So today, when the government um, runs a fiscal deficit, it matches up its deficit spending by selling government bonds. In the US, they're called treasuries. In the UK, they're gilts, right? So to take my earlier example, if the government spends a hundred pounds into the economy and only taxes 90 back out, it has made a financial deposit of 10 pounds. There are 10 British pounds sitting in the banking system somewhere. Now the government, because it has run a deficit, says, okay, I'm going to sell 10 gilts now and match up my deficit spending with, uh, by selling government bonds. So I take the 10 British pounds back out, and I replace them with 10 gilts. Okay, what is the gilt? It is another monetary instrument that can only come from the British government. You're, you're the only government that can issue you know, British government bonds. So it's a monetary instrument that I prefer to think of as another form of payment. See, the government can choose whether to make payments in the form of non-interest-bearing currency, British pounds, or whether to make some of its payments in the form of interest-bearing currency, right? That is the, the government bond. So I don't look at it as if there's something that needs to be paid back. I'm saying the bond itself is a form of payment. It is a monetary instrument the government is using to carry out some of its payments. Now, it's true that the bond uh, has a maturity date. So it could be a 10-year or a 30-year, right? It, it will at some point mature and it bears interest. So the government is paying interest over time. And when the bond matures, it converts back into its original form, which is just British pounds, which is just the currency. So, you know, I think that, again, because we use the word debt to describe the instrument, it gets people anxious because we turn immediately to how we understand debt in our personal lives, credit card debt, mortgage debt, other forms of debt. We think debt is bad, debt is a burden, debt is something you have to eventually pay back. But what I'm saying is for a currency issuing government, the bond does not work like debt for the rest of us, right? It's just a different form of payment that the government is making available so that people can hold interest-bearing currency government bonds or non-interest bearing currency, right? You just think of it as cash. 
So I, I think the words we use get in the way. I don't think that the UK has a deficit problem. I don't think you have a debt problem. I think we all have a communications problem. And so are you arguing then there's no negative consequences for the British government running a really, you know, as high a deficit or as high a debt as it needs to? Well, so, okay, think of the effects. It's always the effects that are important, right? What are the effects of the spending? And so if you imagine that a currency issuing government can afford, we're just talking about what is financially affordable. A currency issuing government can afford to buy whatever is priced for sale, what's available and priced for sale in their own unique currency of account, right? So if it's available and it's for sale in pounds, the British government can afford to buy it. Now the question is, well, how much should it buy? How much should it spend, right? And what should it spend on? Now, these are very different questions. What I'm going to tell you now is that there is definitely a limit, right? If the government goes around authorizing uh, hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions, at some point, their deficits are producing big surpluses, right, in some other part of the economy, and people can do what? Turn around and spend that money. So they try to buy a car, they try to buy a house, they try to buy groceries, they try to go to the movies, they try to take a vacation. And if you are putting too much pressure on the productive capacity of your economy, everybody's demanding things, but the economy can't supply enough goods and services to keep up with all that demand, the punishment for excessive spending is inflation. The punishment is not insolvency. It's not default. It's not that the British government will run out of money. That can't happen. What can happen is that you can push your economy beyond its real resource capacity, right? Beyond its ability to keep up with the demand and you get uh, rising prices. So you get inflation. Inflation, sure. And... <clears throat> Is there, I mean, I, you know, is, and that, and essentially what's happening there, I guess, is that, um, as you describe it, the, what does money, what does money, what is money worth? Is there so much of it in the economy? That's kind of like almost what you're describing there is almost a balancing act for a government to play. It's almost, you're almost talking about just dialing the levers back in one direction or the other to try and keep the economy sort of functioning as if it's, you know, an organism or a, a system in itself. Is that is that kind of right? And who Look, and is that the role I mean, of the government to sort of observe that and kind of play play with that as much as possible? Well, my preferred um, way to handle this, because dialing things up and down in real time and relying on the political process is extraordinarily mm. messy and is probably not going to work very well, which is why, you know, we prefer, when I say we, I mean the MMT academics, the economists who produce this um, scholarship over now a couple, two and a half decades or so, we would prefer strengthening the what we call the automatic stabilizers. That's the parts of the government budget that move automatically without government officials having to vote to spend more or less or raise a tax here or there. There are parts of the budget that move in response to changing economic conditions. So when unemployment increases, there are certain categories of spending that automatically go up. Because when people become unemployed, they qualify for a host of government programs that, by virtue of being eligible, triggers the spending. And then 
when you find a job and you're no longer in poverty or meet the income uh, guidelines criteria, you no longer qualify, then government automatically spends less. So you spend more to support a weak economy. You spend less when the economy is is recovering and and growing, you know, strengthening. And so that's what you'd ideally want to build in as much as possible these automatic stabilizers to take the guesswork out of a lot of this. But um, you know, at the end of the day, the idea is to allow the government's budget to play that cushioning role to increase, to allow the deficit to increase as needed to support an economy when there isn't enough total spending to support jobs and a healthy economy for all, and then to have that scale back as the private sector recovers, gains strength, uh, and is prepared to do more of the heavy lifting. A number of our I mean, so it was interesting, you were talking about the, the government spends £100 in, gets £90 out. A number of our viewers may be familiar with policies and, you know, a lot of that's being talked about now in the US, I guess, with the Green New Deal. Um, I'm sure it's on the horizon in, in many European countries as well. The idea that actually what we need to do to pay for a lot of this is to tax more. Because, you know, one response to the deficit is to talk about how do we bring down government spending, um, maybe a response from left-wing leaning um, individuals would be, well, we need to tax more, especially the wealthy. Your, the modern, modern monetary theory, which I'll ask you to explain a little bit more in depth in a minute, doesn't suggest that directly as a response to a deficit. Is that true? Okay, so you're absolutely right. MMT does not and would never recommend making adjustments to taxing or spending for the purpose of moving the deficit to some pre-desired level. Say, I don't like where the deficit is. I'm going to cut spending or raise taxes to reduce the size of the deficit. We would never do that. Uh, remember, uh, the, the number that falls out of the budget box at the end of each year is in and of itself unimportant. You want to look at things like the inflation rate, look at things like the unemployment rate. So you would be using the fiscal policy lever, changing taxes, changing government spending, in order to impact or influence real things, things that matter, like inflation, like unemployment, but you would never pull the fiscal policy lever just for the sake of trying to reduce the size of, of the deficit. You know, you can have um, the right budget outcome might be a surplus. The right budget outcome might be a balanced budget. The right budget outcome might be a large deficit or a small deficit. The way to know is to look at the things that you ought to be targeting, inflation and unemployment. So if you have, let's say you have a balanced, healthy economy and you have good economic outcomes and you look out into your economy and you see inflation, let's say right at the central bank's target, 2% or whatever the target is, you see unemployment. Uh, you know, you see full employment. You say this is an economy that's at full employment. Inflation is low and stable, and the budget is in deficit, and it's five percent of GDP. Well, why would you complain about a five percent of GDP deficit if it is producing a balanced economy, full employment, low inflation? Similarly, if you got those outcomes—full employment, low, stable inflation—and the budget was in surplus. 2% of GDP. Why would you complain about that? You see what I'm saying? It's the real economy that matters, not this 
arbitrary number that's falling out of the budget box at the end of each year. It's funny because I was going to ask you a question. Your book is called The Deficit Myth, The Birth of the People's Economy. And I think in your answer, you've. I was going to ask you, what do you mean by the birth of the people's economy? And I feel like you've just said it because what you're saying is if we actually just focus on the outcomes we want for the citizens of our economy, that's what we should be focused on rather than worrying about whether the government's like a like a household. I mean, that's, yeah. In the book, I say, you know, we have, we have seen governments around the world, and Lord knows we saw it happen all across Europe, where governments became committed to trying to wrestle their budget into, um, you know, surplus or into balance. And so they start cutting their budgets and or raising tax. And they say, this is what I'm going to do to try to bring my budget into balance. And, and, and what they're really doing is they're saying, I'm going to force my economy to produce a balanced budget. It doesn't work, by the way, but that's what they try to do. Force the economy to balance the budget. And MMT says it's backwards. You should use the budget to balance the broader economy. The goal is to get those balanced um, conditions in the real economy where the rest of us reside, right? That's where we live and breathe in the real outcomes, not the budgetary outcomes. Those are not human. There's no pain involved in the number that, that falls out of the budget box at the end of each year. So let that number be whatever it needs to be to achieve good, healthy outcomes for the real economy. And that's, that's what MMT is trying to do. You know, MMT is a, um, it's a lens. It's a framework for understanding how a modern monetary system like ours works and how government finance works. So what are the policy options available to currency issuing governments? MMT doesn't tell you what you should do. It shows you what you can do. And that's what I mean by the people's economy is that it reveals to us what the possibilities are, right? Where are the real limits? Because there are limits, there are constraints. We do have to prioritize budgets. We do have to make choices about how to use our national resources. So it's not a free lunch, right? There are choices and prioritization and all of that. That's what happens when you budget. But we ought to be budgeting our real resources with the goal being to broadly serve the interest of the population, right? To carry out an agenda that the majority of the population support. And that's, to me, what a people's economy means. And we've mentioned MMT, modern monetary theory, a couple of times. It might be worth just saying, what is it exactly, you know, what's the kind of brief history of it and where does it come from? Well, so this is a, you know, if we say MMT, we're really using, it's a brand name at this point, right? It's a label that if you wrapped your arms around the whole of the project, then you would have, you know, a scholarly, um, a body of scholarship chapters in books and books and, you know, articles and journals and essays and things, reports all over the place written by now a growing number, but in the early years, maybe half a dozen economists, and then it's grown over time. So it's a huge project, uh, 20, 24 or so years in the making. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a project that tries to give us a better macroeconomic framework to understand how economies work, how the monetary system works, the importance of um, 
retaining what we call currency or monetary sovereignty so that it's important. It matters whether governments retain control of their own domestic currency, um, avoid borrowing in currencies they don't control, don't give up a sovereign currency when you have one unless the institutions are there to allow you to support your economies. So in other words, looking at what many countries in, in Europe did, giving up sovereign currencies for us in the very early years, that was problematic. And uh, I and others wrote about the challenges that many of these countries would face when economies turn down and the need for fiscal support becomes strong and governments are incapable of, you know, providing that support to their economies and um, debt crises and all that sort of stuff. So, um, it's a big project. At the end of the day, it's about macroeconomics. It's about providing a clearer picture, a lens through which to um, do the analytics to understand the spending capacities of a currency issuing government and the costs or the challenges that arise when governments compromise their monetary sovereignty. It's. Um... <laughs> I think one of the things that uh, was interesting, I mean, you've ruffled a few feathers of, of uh, you and, and other MMT theorists of mainstream economists. And some of our viewers might be watching this and thinking, how on earth do we not, you know, because in many ways the endeavor is to try and explain, as you described, how to explain how money works. Many of our viewers might be watching this saying, how on earth do we not know how money works, being as, you know, we invented it and we've, uh, you know, we've been using it for such a long period of time. I mean, it's, I don't know how money works, but, um, you know, what is your analysis of that? How has mainstream economics got so detached from how things actually work? Why are we still wrangling with this question? Well, if that's a big question. So, you know, I think that um, there are a lot of ways to answer this. I'll give you one and we'll see if I come up with uh, more. But one is that, you know, when we start the money story, in economics, it comes very late in the narrative that, in other words, we start young people off. We tell our students in the early principles, you know, of macro, we start teaching economics at the ground level, and we don't bring money in. We tell students that basically we should be thinking of a barter economy and that um, economics is about um, studying how exchange happens, right? That people have unlimited wants, but resources are scarce. And so it's really about, you know, combining resources and then just, you know, specializing in production of something. And then we trade things back and forth. We, we exchange. And if money comes in at all, it comes in just to... Um, well, the term of art is like lubricate the system, right? That money is there to make it easier for people to transact so that, you know, back in the day you, you had a, a village and, you know, you'd have the village fisherman and then you'd have somebody in the village whose job it was to make clay pots so you could cook your fish and somebody's job was to, you know, sew shoes so you could protect your feet and walk around, whatever, right? You want to make a trade. And so you take your fish to the local trading venue and you're looking for a clay pot. But the person who makes clay pots has to want your fish before you can get the clay pot you're after. So this is 
what we say requires a double coincidence of wants. Barter can't happen without that double coincidence of wants. So people invent money because money makes trade easier, right? If you'll agree to take this um, little seashell or um, you know, whatever primitive money thing was supposedly used at one point, and we all agree to take that, then it just makes things more efficient because I can get the pot that I want without you needing my fish. I just give you the seashell. And then the story sort of grows over time and we start saying, you know, well, then they invent new money things and trade changes. But at the end of the day, money's not an important part of the story. It's not an important institution. And the reality is it's probably the most important institution in capitalism, right? Money. And economists really treated, if at all, as some sort of an afterthought, that it's really just there to be a medium of exchange, to overcome the inefficiencies associated with barter. And, um, you know, so I had a lot of difficulty because I was also a finance major. I studied economics uh, and finance. And so I, I was really interested in financial markets and um, money, the money question. And I got myself into some trouble in graduate school because in economics, once I started to pursue economics, I would ask these irritating questions of my professors about, you know, finance and financial markets and money. And um, I, I, it was made pretty clear to me um, that these were unwelcome questions in a in a class which was basically teaching us to think of the economy as if it were we were still you know oriented around barter. And I think what's amazing about that um, is it's so obvious when you go through and describe it how our economy doesn't work like that. As in, you know, when you hear about the trillions and trillions of dollars that are invested, both within public and private sectors. It's, it's not, we're not living in a barter economy anymore. That, that we're very detached from that simplification of the economy. If we ever were, and that was uh, one of the big points in David Graeber's book, right? Debt the First 5,000 Years. And Graeber writes a massive book. And in it, he essentially says, you know, we, I'm an anthropologist, he says, and I'm not finding evidence. And other anthropologists do not find evidence that barter economies ever actually existed anywhere on earth, right? Not in any meaningful sense. It doesn't mean people didn't, you know, trade uh, a chicken for a a goat or something somewhere sometime. But this idea that societies organize themselves around barter, um, anthropologists like Graeber say, there's just little, if any, evidence for anything like that out there. So yeah, economists have not been particularly good at telling uh, a historically accurate, rich stories about money, its origin, the nature, you know, why it exists, where it came from, and so forth. I have one final question for you, Stephanie. Um, what? So you know, we're, we're kind of in a interesting, interesting in a in a good and bad ways moment in time um, across a range, a range of issues. Uh, we're actually recording this pre the U.S. election. By the time um, it airs we will know the result of that um, slightly nerve-wracking moment in time. Um, obviously, we're, we're, very, you know, we're looking at budgets for the EU, for example. I think they're looking at a budget that's double its normal size for the next um, period of time as we come out of um, the pandemic. 
What does man modern monetary theory kind of say to people who are pushing for things like the US Green New Deal, for people uh, like ourselves who are pushing for a circular economy which necessarily involves quite a heavy amount of upfront investment um, in order to shift that operating system? Well, so what MMT does is to reveal to us the spending capacities of different governments. So if you look at the monetary system that's in place in, say, Germany or France or Italy or any of the other members of the Eurozone, you recognize immediately that these are countries that are financially constrained. Okay, They are not sovereigns, monetary sovereigns like the US, like the UK, like Australia, like Japan, and so forth. So in terms of what they can afford to do to finance a Green New Deal, there are differences for countries that operate with that monetary system in Europe in place with the EMU. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing they can do. And I think the good news for those countries is that we have, uh, they have a central bank head, a figure in uh, Madame Christine Lagarde, who I think is quite concerned about climate change. She is um, talking about ways in which the ECB can play a role in helping governments finance investments in green tech, green energy, green economy, greening the economy. So at the end of the day, the ECB is the currency issuer. Okay, They're the issuer of the currency and they can backstop and are backstopping the Euro project now. And to the extent that the ECB is willing to play that role going forward, the ECB can play a very powerful role in terms of um, helping to provide the financing to governments that are otherwise financially constrained to allow them to carry out an ambitious sort of Green New Deal. I'm not saying that's the only source of financing that's available, but it is a potentially very important one. In countries like the UK and the US, well, you know, it's what do governments want to commit if the U.S. government does what Vice President Biden has suggested he wants to do, which is to commit $2 trillion to, um, you know, uh, climate investments of one kind or another over the next uh, first term, right, his first four years in office, $2 trillion. And if Congress will pass that bill, then there will be $2 trillion invested in greening the economy and so forth. The British government can make similar commitments by virtue of the fact that, you know, you are not financially constrained uh, as we're not. So um, that's good news for, um, you know, for those who want to see swift action on a scale that would allow us to tackle this problem in the time, you know, that, that we have to keep emissions down and so forth. It's going to take massive investments. And the good news is that um, governments like ours are fully capable of committing the resources uh, to carrying out an ambitious climate abatement program. Stephanie, I said that was going to be your last question. I have one very quick last question. Sure. We throughout okay. this throughout this show, um, we've we've had Kate Rayworth on, we've had others on. We're often we're talking about the need for new thinking, new language. How much is this a call to individuals as well as um, policymakers and people who actually control some of the budgets that we've been talking about in this conversation? Is it irrelevant for them, or is it really important that they also understand some of this? 
the book is written for them. I mean, it's not, it not only is it not irrelevant, I think it's absolutely vital that everyday people get involved in the conversation, that they are disabused of the myths that have been holding us back. Because, you know, you can't demand more of your government if you don't think it's possible, right? You have to believe first that there's actually the ability to do these things. And so we can't allow public officials to say, you know, I'd love to be able to help. I'd like to be able to make those investments in the economy, greening the economy, dealing with climate but we have this deficit, but we have this debt. You know, we're out of money. We've already spent, we've piled on debt, the next generation. So what I want to do with the book is to empower the little guy, right? The average reader, the average person, so that they can stand up and say when that excuse is given, no, 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 I am. I don't believe that. I don't buy that any longer, right? I have, I have a better understanding now of how it all works. And I know for years I, I worked for uh, a senator uh, who ran for president twice here in this country, and um, referring to Senator Bernie Sanders, and you know his um, his model of change goes like this. You know he always says change never comes from the top down; change always comes from the bottom up. And so, if the book accomplishes what I intended and what I hoped it might um, accomplish, it's to help more and more people build that groundswell of support from the bottom to push those in decision-making positions, right? Elected officials and, and so forth to make the changes that, um, that I think the people really do want, but they just haven't fully believed that it's all possible. We have heard from Stephanie about how government deficits are really different from household deficits and how this relates to government's investment power to create an economy that works for and drives outcomes for people. That is all for this episode of the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, share and comment wherever you are listening to this podcast. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.